UNFTR. On this day, with high hopes and brave hearts, in massive numbers, the American people have voted to make a new beginning. And now we are on course for budget surpluses for the next 25 years. Most people are working harder for less money than they were making 10 years ago. It is because we are in the grip of a failed economic theory. I don't know how you would characterize the gang leaders who got 13-year-old kids hopped up on crack and sent them out onto the street to murder other African-American children. Maybe you thought they were good citizens. She didn't. An open statement by a service member that he or she is a homosexual will create a rebuttable presumption that he or she intends to engage in prohibited conduct. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. It is true that the Glass-Steagall law is no longer appropriate to the economy in which we live. This is the story of a political pundit Who looked at the world around him and just said fuck it Gives the middle finger to authority and says kiss my ass But instead of a revolution he started a podcast Just what the world needs Another basic white guy who he curses on the fucking the Republic. And fucking the Republic is sponsored by Insane Level members W. Jeremy D, Tam Jam, Sam C, Ryan F, Rob Nasby, Prof G, Nick G, and Cassie LMM, Nathan Surst, Nathan Second, Nathan E, Michelle H, and Matthew. Thirty years ago, a bright, energetic, smooth-talking young politician from Arkansas had just clinched the Democratic primary to become his party's nominee for president. He nearly ran the table, save for a few low-delegate states. Only Jerry Brown hung in past March and conceded at the convention shortly after losing his home state of California. It was an unlikely journey for a seemingly small-time governor from a poor southern state. But Bill Clinton was a big-time politician who was on a multi-year charm offensive throughout the nation, laying the groundwork for what would become a political dynasty in the United States. Though we march to the music of our time, our mission is timeless. To do this story justice, I really want to steer clear of the more salacious details of his presidency and the conspiratorial claims that continue to haunt the Clinton family. It's uninteresting and distracts from important details about his tenure and how his policies hang over the Democratic Party and the nation like a dark cloud. Because of my age, the 90s were my political coming of age years. Likewise, because of my age, there was so much about those years that I couldn't fully appreciate or understand. But history is quite clear and getting clearer as we deal with the repercussions of this period. So to wave away the fog even more, we're going to split this up into three parts. It's a bit unorthodox for us, I know. But I really think the Clinton years warrant our extreme focus and attention. The first part is actually going to be close to the present day, examining the legacy of Bill Clinton through the lens of the Clinton Foundation and how it continues to embody the neoliberal ideals of the new Democrats. The Foundation is an interesting animal because it remains an extension of Clinton in both good and bad ways. 
Good in terms of intent, bad in terms of execution and guiding principles. Mind you, this isn't a hit piece on the foundation like we've become accustomed to in the media. There are great people at the foundation, and they've done some meaningful work, but the approach gives us remarkable insight into how deep the neoliberal infection runs in the Democratic Party. Next week, part two will focus on how Clinton developed his political, economic, and social principles during his rise to power and ultimately shaped his two terms in office and the legacy of the party through Obama and now with Biden. And then lastly, we'll scrutinize the presidential years in the 90s themselves. All of the gory policy details and none of the pornographic ones. The through line is indeed neoliberalism. And while we've unpacked this term many times before, it warrants revisiting to contextualize Bill Clinton's philosophy and tenure. The term neoliberalism purportedly first appeared in 1938 at a European conference attended by none other than Friedrich Hayek, who began to develop and refine an economic theory that departed from the Keynesian conventions of the day. The term would ultimately be applied to the work produced by Hayek's Mont Pelerin Society, whose star pupil from the Chicago School of Economics would go on to become one of the most influential figures in modern history and the nemesis of our little show. Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! Neoliberalism is an economic model that promotes free market liberalism and global trade above all else. Its proponents take a cynical view of government regulation and intervention into markets and society. They believe that governments exist primarily to protect trade and that they should be limited to protecting citizens from foreign invasion and from one another. Put another way, a government's exclusive purview is in the carceral and punitive sphere. Free markets can provide everything from capital accumulation and resource management to social services, healthcare, and education. The free market can end racism, alleviate poverty, prevent war. Neoliberalism calls for the wholesale deregulation of government services wherever and whenever the private sector can function and views citizens in society merely as consumers in a marketplace. Nowhere was neoliberalism so unabashedly on display as it was during the Clinton administration. These were the glory days. Not Reagan, not Bush 1 or Bush 2, not Obama, and certainly not Trump. It was green light go for the Chicago boys when old Slick Willie from Arkansas came to town. UNFTR is also sponsored by Insane Level members, Cringy, Jennifer S., G. Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S., Cindy S., Awesome A., Asoke, and Asshole. Additionally, this episode is sponsored by Unfucking Pros, Skier Femme, and Caleb C. Chapter 1. The Foundation. Let's start at the end. When we started, the commitment process was a little card, and you just filled it in. And then we figured out, you know, we better figure out how to help people develop these commitments. Then we figured out we better determine how we can help them keep the commitments. So pretty soon, most people were involved in helping people commit and keep the commitments. These were former President Clinton's remarks recounting the accomplishments of the Clinton Global Initiative, 
and all the commitments that we're committed to and the people who were committed to helping people commit to their commitments and keep them. The Clinton Global Initiative was just one of the programs beneath the umbrella of the infamous Clinton Foundation that drew a great deal of attention from right-wing media and the Trump Justice Department. This particular program was shut down in 2017 as the foundation looked to refocus its efforts following Hillary Clinton's loss to Donald Trump. During the election itself, the Clintons had pledged to restructure the entire foundation by removing family from leadership positions and foregoing any donations from foreign governments, NGOs, or individuals. Controversy had already broken out with the leak of emails from Hillary Clinton, John Podesta, and the DNC. And while never proven, certain emails appeared to suggest a sort of pay-to-play relationship for access to the Obama administration for wealthy foreign foundation donors. Trump and the right-wing media pounced all over it, while Team Clinton attempted to downplay the growing scandal. But the scandal would endure well into Trump's term as the foundation struggled to find its footing amidst deeper investigations into its financial dealings. Now, earlier this month, the Department of Justice launched an investigation into whether a major U.S. nonprofit engaged in pay-to-play politics, also known as corruption. One of the organization's founders is a former president, and another was Secretary of State. Donors to the foundation included some of the richest and most powerful people and corporations in the world. And in exchange for their donations, they received special access, favors, protection, and lucrative business deals. Tonight, we investigate the swamp that started it all. Like most Clinton scandals, where there was smoke, there was fire. Just not a wildfire. Little brush fires that served to harden the impression on the right that the Clintons were serially corrupt and all extinguished enough to satisfy Democrats that this right-wing obsession is, was, and will always be unfounded. Quote, a Justice Department inquiry launched more than two years ago to mollify conservatives clamoring for more investigations of Hillary Clinton has effectively ended with no tangible results. In true Clinton fashion, they were able to stay one step ahead of any real legal trouble, and the foundation lives on to this day. Even the global initiative is apparently getting revitalized because Lord knows the world needs the Clintons now more than ever. Am I right? I thought it appropriate to begin with the Clinton Foundation because after all of their years in public service, one can imagine that they have learned a great deal about the world and how to fix it. It's hard to argue their pedigree. Between them, the couple has governor, secretary of state, U.S. senator, and president of the United States on their combined resume game set and match on the best power couple LinkedIn profile of all time. But the foundation reveals how little they've actually learned. So as we dig into the foundation, I want to start on a positive note. Here's a passage from a New Yorker article outlining some of the foundation's successes in an effort to debunk claims that it was nothing more than a slush fund, a popular phrase on the right used to describe the Clinton's efforts. Quote, in a 2014 report, the World Health Organization credited the foundation's health arm, the Clinton Health Access Initiative, which is now a separate but affiliated entity, with helping to bring down the cost of AIDS drugs in poor countries. Nine million people have lower-cost HIV-AIDS medicine because of the work of the Clinton Foundation and my husband, Clinton told Anderson Cooper in June of this year. After examining the basis of this claim, 
the fact-checking website PolitiFact rated it as true, saying, if anything, Clinton understated the number of people who have benefited from the program. Charity Watch, the watchdog group formerly known as the American Institute of Philanthropy, has granted the Clinton Foundation an A-grade for financial management, end quote. So this article came at a time when even Democrats were calling on the Clintons to abandon the foundation altogether. The whiff of impropriety, especially surrounding Hillary during the campaign, was unseemly and, to many in the party, unnecessary. Plus, it kept former President Clinton in the limelight, and he was becoming increasingly prone to outbursts and statements that the campaign needed to walk back. But the election of Donald Trump changed the calculus on nearly everything in the Clintons' lives. So while they did move to shutter the Clinton Global Initiative, the balance of the foundation remained intact, though donations declined precipitously at first. The foundation was at a crossroads. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? Despite the ongoing inquiries into their finances, the foundation slowly regained its footing during the Trump years and continued with several core initiatives. Its efforts include climate resilience, tackling the opioid crisis, post-disaster recovery programs throughout the Caribbean, training young future leaders in its Too Small to Fail program that provides guidance for children to succeed in school and beyond. It sounds great and wholesome, and as I've said before, the foundation has achieved some tangible results. Some. But before we go further into how the foundation and their programs are structured, which strikes at the heart of our story today, let's dig into the finances, as we do. The last available annual report came out in November of 2021, covering the full year of 2020. It's a fascinating look into what's considered a top-rated charity in the world. It's important to note that this particular foundation is a programmatic charity. It's not designed to award grants and funds to other charities, though it does have the capacity to do so, and it does it from time to time. And we'll go through some of the language that they use to illustrate their approach to changing the world in a moment. But first, let's look at the numbers. From the top, in 2020, the Clinton Foundation took in about $52 million in revenue, mostly between grants and contributions, though it had a few sources of extra income. But the bulk was donations. And it made about $33 million in investment income. Hmm, back to that in a momentito. As far as expenses, the foundation laid out about $31 million in program expenses, $6 million in management overhead, and $3.3 million in fundraising expenses. Now, these expenses are primarily in salaries. Back to that in a momentito as well. So, all told for 2020, the foundation had a net gain of $10.6 million in assets, essentially the profit from operations, though it's not considered a profit in a nonprofit organization, obviously but they brought in $10 million more than they spent on program. On the surface, not that momentous, right? I mean, just last week, we delved into the finances of the fake conservative propaganda organization PragerU that had almost the exact same top-line revenue as the fucking Clinton Foundation. Except they make poisonous videos that teach young people that racism isn't real. Well, the similarities actually don't end with the amount of revenue. It turns out both organizations are sitting on a fucking boatload of cash. As of the end of 2020, the Clinton Foundation had more than $323 million in liquid assets, $81 million of which is unrestricted, meaning for any use. Again, it's another important distinction, this concept of restricted versus unrestricted. Unrestricted means that they can deploy that cash however they see fit. 
Restricted means it sits there for either donor-approved purposes or it has some sort of self-imposed limitations in the organization's bylaws. In Clinton's case, it's the latter. The organization is designed to absorb money to grow its endowment, and these funds have specific uses like operating the Clinton Presidential Library in Arkansas. And it allows for 3% to 5% of the funds to be used toward programs. You see this a lot in higher education. Institutions that sit on massive sums of money to be used at the board's discretion. Financing construction projects, buying land, saving for a rainy day, etc. But for a foundation that purports to be a change agent for climate, economic development around the world, early childhood education, and disaster preparedness, it sure is cautious in how it deploys its funds. Come on, you. Cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. I paid for your goddamn breakfast. Now for that part about investment income. The foundation keeps most of its cash in a range of investments, though it has a few million in actual cash on hand. For the most part, though, their money is tied up in the following ways. Four million in cash money. Clams, moolah, Benjamins. 52 million in mutual funds. 107 million in various types of hedge funds. 35 million in private equity funds. And 19 million in what they just call, quote, strategic investment funds. In terms of donations, they listed nine private, meaning personal donors, but they failed to list their names. But they raised about $7.2 million from just nine individuals, which is pretty substantial in personal donations, but a drop in the bucket overall. Now, when it comes to where they allocate their funds between program and handing out grants, the bulk of their money actually stays within the United States. In fact, the foundation apparently allocates money only to three foreign regions, and the numbers are small. Two million to climate initiatives in the Caribbean and Central America, two million to economic development in South America, and two and a half million to sub-Saharan African climate and economic development. That's it. But recall that they do have the ability to award grants to other nonprofit organizations, so these are worth calling out as well. Team, what do we got? Uh, looks like six hundred twenty-five thousand went to the Alliance for a Healthier Generation. Ten grand to City Year Little Rock. Sixty-five hundred to Coveducation, whatever that is. Fifty-two thousand to Kaboom. Kaboom. <laughs> uh, Twenty-seven thousand to Laundry Cares Foundation. Is is that a real thing? And 1.1 million to, oh, you gotta be kidding me. Say it. 1.1 million to the George W. Bush Foundation in Dallas, Texas. Let's wrap this part up by talking about tangibles. We gave credit where it was due with respect to lowering the price of HIV medications in poor countries. And that was a real thing. President Clinton actually addressed how that happened in his State of the Foundation address that we played a clip from earlier. Basically, that came about through his diplomatic cajoling of drug companies, NGOs, and healthcare providers. It was such a success that it laid the way for how the foundation would evaluate opportunities to make an impact in other large-scale initiatives. Taking one idea that worked in a very specific circumstance, then applying that same logic across the board is a theme that I want you to remember for the next episode. Anyway. That brings us back to the bit about program and salaries. Because the foundation isn't really designed to award grants. Uh, unless it's the former presidential war criminals who drove the U.S. economy into the ground, created the widespread domestic surveillance apparatus, and got us into two protracted multi-billion dollar wars that produced hardship and millions of casualties abroad. It measures success through consulting and support performed by hundreds of Clinton Foundation employees throughout the U.S. and a handful of other countries around the world. 
These staffers are so effective that the Foundation website, impact statement, and annual report all claim that the Foundation has improved the lives of 430 million people across the globe. That 30 million children in the United States are leading healthier lives. And they've graduated 11,000 students from their Clinton Global Initiative University program ready to take on the challenges of tomorrow, among other things. Pretty hefty claims, if I may say so. During the pandemic in the heart of Arkansas, the foundation partnered with Bank of America to provide year-round virtual programming, academic experiences, and workshops that promoted civic engagement. It created an action network that held enriching conversations designed to create more equitable and inclusive recovery to the hurricane in Puerto Rico in partnership with MasterCard. It partnered with Verizon, IBM, and several universities to gather student leaders committed to making positive change. And it partnered with both Bush foundations to teach leadership lessons from former presidents to 350 scholars committed to tackling today's most pressing challenges. Blah, 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 blah. Look, there are certainly some fine people working at the Clinton Foundation. And the goals are lofty and admirable. But hopefully, you are able to read between the lines to understand the Clinton mentality. A couple of observations. Yes, it's important to have leadership in crucial initiatives. Someone needs to be in charge, setting the course, steering the ship, and the foundation certainly has the reputation to draw awareness and focus attention on critical issues, and that is important. And the foundation's staff is deliberately and beautifully diverse, also important. But the real work is being done by the organizations they're corralling, and there's a good chance they'd be doing it anyway. The foundation is basically a vessel to hire extremely well-intentioned young people and expose them to domestic and global challenges that are being solved and tackled on the ground by other people. $31 million in overhead for personnel to develop ideas, extract commitments, inspire leadership, cultivate partnerships, promote civic engagement, and foster inclusivity and in decision-making is exactly the type of liberal, green, and whitewashing establishment speak that sounds great, but accomplishes very little. The rather audacious claim that this plucky band of do-gooders improved the lives of 430 million fucking people is a bit much, even for the most generous fan of the Clintons. But it's really about something else. Verizon, IBM, MasterCard, Bank of America, to understand Bill Clinton, the shadow he casts on our nation and economy to this day, his worldview, his presidency, legacy, everything about him, is to understand the nature of public-private partnerships and wholehearted dedication to neoliberal economic theory that has poisoned our nation, perhaps beyond the point of no return. I like the Global Initiative because the only requirement is that if you come and participate, you have to commit to do something. And we try to help people form networks so that no matter what is or is not happening in government or the private sector, there's always a gap between what the government can provide and the private sector will produce. And we try to figure out how to fill the gap. The steadfast and dogmatic belief that governments and non-governmental organizations alike can only be effective when in partnership with the private sector is core to understanding this man. 
and a great place to rewind as we examine Slick Willie's origin story. Now, before we get into post-show musings, I want to plant a few seeds for the next section. The first is to say that while the focus of this series is on the political legacy of Bill Clinton, it in no way suggests that Hillary Clinton is distinct. From the earliest days of his political career, Hillary Clinton played a crucial role in both the development of his political philosophy and its execution. The fact that she has been a lightning rod of criticism in a way that her husband has been able to mostly deflect over time is more a reflection of American misogyny than it is a critique of her power and influence. Their marital issues aside, Bill and Hillary Clinton have effectively functioned as a singular power unit unrivaled in history. In part two, we're going to rely heavily on a relatively new book titled Left Behind, The Democrats' Failed Attempt to Solve Inequality by Lily Geismer. Of all the options for book love, I'm fortunate to have come across Geismer's book because it has the benefit of timeliness and a remarkably clear narrative that tracks closely with the larger suppositions of UNFTR. Here's a passage from the introduction that perfectly encapsulates the premise of the book. Quote, Left Behind dispels this narrative of the Democratic Party and the political history of the United States since the late 1960s. It reveals how Bill Clinton and the New Democrats helped to fundamentally remake many of the priorities and policies of the Democratic Party and liberalism during this period. The New Democrats' adoption of market-oriented approaches to address inequality was not a defensive reaction to the Republicans. Rather, it was based on a genuine belief in the power of the market and private sector to achieve traditional liberal ideals of creating equality, individual choice, and help for people in need. Even more significantly, by placing poor people at the whims of the private sector, it put them and their communities at risk for financial instability and predation, as became all too clear in the 2008 financial crisis and its aftermath. End quote. Lastly, you'll notice that I'll continue to avoid the more tawdry details of their time and power. The sheer amount of time that they have occupied positions of power and influence in the modern era warrants an honest assessment and almost psychological profile of this curious couple. One concluding observation I can comfortably make, even at this beginning stage of the profile, is that my feelings toward them are similar to the ones that I have towards Uncle Fucknugget, Milton Friedman. I believe wholeheartedly just like Milton Friedman, that the Clintons are true ideologues, true believers, people who were as attracted to the flame of power as they were to making positive changes in the world. But they're also the ultimate technocrats, believers in technology and the power of markets to alleviate poverty, global warming, education, hurricanes, war, famine, you name it. And they came of age in the post-Powell memo era when corporate America decided to fight back and wrest control. Corporate influence was already normalized when Bill Clinton became governor of Arkansas, the first story that we'll tell in the next episode. So much so that he would move effortlessly between the two worlds until they ultimately merged into one as the corporate takeover of the nation was completed under his successors. Here endeth part one of the Clinton years.
It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Hey, unfuckers. Welcome into post-show musings. Happy to be here. 99, how you feeling today? Uh, a little tired, but I'm, in, I'm hanging in there. Yes, you were a road warrior this week. Yes. I went to see a show, another one. and um, Midweek, no less. Yeah. That's tough. Yeah. And uh, I just got back, literally, mo- mere moments before recording this. And I'm quite tired. 99 k- strolled in with her almost famous glasses on, just uh, the full blonde curls flowing. And uh, you were just you were just full Kate. You were just making it happen. Thank you. It was pretty cool. So that wraps up part one of the Clinton years which I feel like is going to be, we're going to gain some momentum. Don't worry on fuckers. I know that this was sort of a table setting episode, but we're really going to, we're really going to jam in the next couple of episodes. And I'm, I'm super excited about jam? it. Jam. We're going to jam band through it. Whoa. Mm-hmm. Now you're speaking my language. I know it. So why did you decide to do this in three parts? Because I think that's going to take us like right up to our vacation. Well, the nineties represent a lot to me in terms of, I guess, hardening and inculcating this idea of neo- neoliberalism into the political economy and the social economy of the United States and then how we began to behave and act on the world stage. So, so many things were happening in the world at the time that are incredibly fascinating because you've got the end of the Soviet empire, you've got the beginning of this detente with the Russians, Eastern Europe is is breaking apart and fragmenting, so the economic structure there is incredibly weak. China is not yet fully ascendant, although it is on the horizon. And I think it's safe to say that that period of time was the moment that the U.S. had a chance to define itself as the sole superpower in the world and then how the economic systems would subsequently fall in line after that. So we've spoken so much about the 70s. We've spoken so much about that that period of time transitioning into the Reagan era and you know the go-go 80s and people have this impression that the 80s were really that time of prosperity. But in hindsight, they really weren't. The 80s were still tough. Wall Street was humming, but the 80s were still pretty tough on the working class. So that, that's when a lot of the social structures were stripped away. That's when you saw that the war on drugs really came to fruition. And the gaps started to explode between the haves and the have-nots. The 90s was an opportunity to either recognize that and shift course or to fully adopt this new Democrats philosophy of governing with the private sector almost in the driver's seat. So... In order to kind of tell that story and how monumental the 90s were as the inflection point for, I would say, capitalism, democracy, and the new world order, that I just, I felt like doing it in one part, two parts just kind of wasn't enough. And as I thought about the arc of the story, starting with the foundation to me was, was pretty cool because it's like, well, were any lessons learned from that? Because Bill Clinton at the time was, was a very young president. And we knew that he was going to have a much longer post-presidential life than we were typically accustomed to. 
So with this young president that represented sort of the the beginning of the boomers taking over and taking the reins of the country, he was going to have a long tail. The fact that his wife became such a prominent political actor is something that deserves its own unfucking because she she is also a powerhouse. And, and I want to make sure that as we're telling this story, I go back to something that I said towards the close there, that I'm really telling both of their stories. Yes, he was the president, but she was as much a co-captain and co-chair of the Clinton enterprise as, as he was, and then became obviously the dominant political force in democratic politics for years to come. So she's really central to the story. Their ongoing hold on democratic politics and the establishment policies that the Democrats are clinging to is unfortunate, ill-timed for so so many of us when the progressives looked like they were surging and and sort of tragic in its own way. But at the same time, you can't be dismissive of the things that they know, the things that they've learned, because I am a believer in institutional knowledge. You need smart people that have been in government, that understand the levers of power, that understand the world order to be able to 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 run shit. They were just the wrong fucking people to do it. Now, having said that, we can't minimize their influence. So that last chapter, starting with the last chapter of the Clintons, which and hopefully this is the last chapter of the Clintons, to me felt like a really good jumping off point to kind of like go back through time to then make the origin story more interesting. So, like I said, part two is going to be the origin story, and then we're going to finish off with the actual years in the White House. To me personally, it was incredibly fascinating to revisit this time because I consider that my political awakening. That was really, so I was in college when he was elected. I was finished binge drinking at that point, so I was actually starting to pay attention in class had become infatuated with government and with all my government courses and history courses and started writing for the school newspaper. And so I I felt like I was really active and oh boy, did I fucking know everything that there was to know. And I hated Bill Clinton because- insufferable. I was awful. I hated Bill Clinton because, oh, he was just, he was the wrong direction for the country. And I didn't even know fucking why. I couldn't even really properly articulate it. I was one of those kids that was like the last article I read was the, was the only thing that ever existed and had no no historical you know awareness. So for me, it was a really important time. I almost want to go back and punch younger Max in the face for thinking that way. But it's all part of our journey. And that's that's why I loved you know this journey together. So if that was my political awakening... And that period meant so much to me. At your age right now, would you consider the Bush years your political awakening or what would it be Obama? Well, before we get there, I just want to know, did you have to lug your typewriter around or did you have like a slate and chalk? Remember making toast in a gizmo like this? Everbridge Farm remembers. I had... I actually went to college with a brother typewriter. Oh, I knew you were insufferable. In this system feels better. Because personal computing didn't fucking exist yet, 99. There are notebooks. What are you even talking about? Write things down on the notebook. I did have notebooks, I, and I still have my notebooks. Thank you fucking very much. Mine are all in the trash. But when I had to turn in papers and essays, it was on a brother typewriter. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. Fine. And then 
And then my junior year, no, at the end of my freshman year, I got a Mac. I got that very first Mac that hit the market. So you're saying, oh, personal computer didn't exist. So yeah, when I went. And that was the year. That was the revolution. Okay. And it was a big fucking deal. It was a lot of goddamn money, too. I'll tell you that. All right. Why are you yelling at me? Because you're just, you're an ageist and you're shaming me. Guess what? This just in. Bill Clinton is currently 75. That's it? Currently. He has, until August, he's going to turn 76 on August 19th. He's only 75? Unless he's lying about his age. That's what Google is saying. God, that's and unbelievable. And he's 6'2". Still? <laughs> I don't know if they uh, subtract. And Hillary Clinton is... That can't be right. What do you want from me? Jeez. Hillary Clinton is... 74. Wow. Okay. Okay. Well, my political awakening. Um, let's see. I definitely remember being cognizant during Bush, like, and hating him, which is weird because I was, like, very young, but... Do you remember the jib jab videos, like the original oh jib jab? Oh my god, yes. And it's like, it's good to be in DC. I like have them. Jib I, jab. I watched them recently and I still knew the words. Do they hold up? Because I thought they were fucking funny too. Yeah, I mean, nothing overly problematic. Uh, I thought they were funny still. But yeah, I remember being very like cognizant during that. Obviously, I wasn't like... I don't like his platform. You know, I just thought he was stupid and ugly and dumb. <laughs> um, did you stay up all night for Obama's inauguration? Did I stay up? Honestly, no. I, like, Obama was definitely the first president where I remember being, you know, caring more about the issues at hand because I was a teenager and I had more thoughts, but I didn't really follow. With the second election, I followed more. Because that was, like, obviously scary. The Romney election? The 2000 and... The 2012 election? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes. First one, I was still pretty young. I did. We did watch the inauguration in school. They, like, all... They brought us down to the assembly room. Is that what they called it? I guess, like, the auditorium. Okay. Yeah. And we all watched it, which was cool. Because, you know, it's, like, history in the making. Yeah, I honestly feel like in the last... Eight years is probably like the most awakened I've been because we have no choice. The only time that I watched something in school was when the Challenger blew up in the <laughs> 80s. And then I remember them wheeling it in from the uh, AV club mm. because I had a friend who was in the AV club oh, and he was all excited that he could. Yeah. He, so he gets to wheel it in on that big tray. And on it. Usually it's just a VCR. <laughs> no, you know, we had you know, we watched it. Li- we watched That's it live weird. until, you know. It happened. Oh. And then it, and I remember the mad scramble like, oh, fuck. And then the meetings and the explanations. And the, well, that was we, the we, last, we, that was the last bit of live TV that we got. They until couldn't I have graduated. known. <laughs> no, of course not. Yeah. So we're going to tackle a lot more. This idea of a political awakening, I think, is tantamount to understanding what this next generation is going to do right now because there was so much behind Bernie coming into the last two elections. Millionaires and billionaires. Millionaires and billionaires. Until, obviously, it was stolen, it was fizzled, and then we had to just, we had to do what we had Mm. to do, apparently. But a political awakening, these type of resurgences only happen every so often. So when you think about these important inflection points in history, 
I've made the case before that Obama was a continuation of neoliberal policies and today would be considered, in hindsight, one of the best Republican presidents that ever held the office. That's a t-shirt. That is a t-shirt. The best Republican ever. Yeah. But this moment in the 90s, we're going to delve a little bit into something that I'm kind of excited about. I don't want to tease too much about it, but we're going to delve a little bit in the next chapter into what would have been the kind of Bernie moment prior to Bill Clinton. So we understand exactly who the new Democrats were looking to sideline just in the same exact way that the new Democrats today have sidelined Bernie and the progressives. The only difference is the progressive challenge has continued to mount the further entrenched neoliberal policies have gotten over the last couple of decades and the more inequality has grown and the cracks have begun to show in this philosophy. One last point. I do think it's important to recognize, though, that the economic stars were aligned in the 90s for almost anything in the United States to find success. And I, I hope I actually remember to return to this point because I think it's important. Because the 90s were so successful from our traditional economic standpoint and all, all of the data points that we would typically look at. The 90s were so successful that it gave the appearance that these policies were going to be as strong, forward-thinking, enduring, and helpful as the Great Society and the New Deal. That's a really important point because, having said that, almost any policy would have succeeded in that moment because, again, the stars were aligned. So unemployment was in a really good place. Technology was growing. There was already a storm brewing in Silicon Valley that was going to, no matter whether there was government intervention, regulation, seed programs or not, it was going to take off. And Moore's Law was really going to start to spin. So we also were hegemonic at that time. We were it, right? With the, with the collapse of the Soviet Union before China was ascendant, this moment in time was so fertile for change that anybody's policies were probably going to look really, really good. So I don't really blame the masters of the 90s and the Democratic Party at that time for thinking that they were on the right track. I, I really don't. Because in that moment, it must have seemed like they had the Midas touch. Now, were there signs that the cracks were beginning to show? Yeah. Was inequality already becoming a, a, a real problem? Absolutely. Could you make that same sort of statement if you were a black person in the United States at that time? Absolutely not. So when I make that claim, I'm saying that on the traditional classic economic measures that are most important to the liberal set and the liberal elite, things look pretty fucking great. And it looked like everything and everybody was winning. But we ignored who we were as a party and what our job was supposed to be, which is to take care of the poorest among us. So anyway, more to come. I'm very excited for it. 
as always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by sound design maestro, Manny Faces. Check one, two. This is Baby Girl Faces. When I'm uh, playing at the world us, or remote learning, my kindergarten, I'm checking out Manny Faces. That's my dad. The show is lovingly produced by the great, powerful, and at this moment, exhausted 99. I'm going to call Kaboom and check on their availability for next year. Great. Hmm. Information. Hi, yes, I'd like the number for Kaboom, the National Playground Building Charity. I hope they can work us in. Sorry, there's no listing for that name. What? You sure? Kaboom is the word I made up. It's not in any dictionary. I trick people into building playgrounds and empty lots in their neighborhood. It's an elaborate prank. For my next prank, I'm going to build a hospital in a poor part of China. I'll never see it coming. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Bell and distributed by Hillary. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. We're going to be filling that sucker up with a bunch of good ones on the 90s and Clinton and some other things. And get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop. And remember, everybody, you could probably say it along with me. Read our essays at unftr.substack.com because they're always going to be free. There's no gated content on this show. We do it because we love it. Thank you for your support. 99, I'll catch you next week. Unfuckers, enjoy your weekend. And now for a skit flashback. Hello? Bill? It's Bill. Hey, how'd you get this number? This is my burner phone. How did I get this? I'm Bill Gates. How do you think I got this number? <laughs> okay, how's it hanging? Not great. That's why I'm calling. Oh, yeah. Hey, I heard about the divorce thing. Congratulations. <laughs> I'm so jealous. Yeah, well, we have bigger issues. Melinda is on to the Epstein thing. Hey, you know I can't talk about that now. I have no idea where Hillary is. She's 400 yards away from you. We're fine. Hey, how did you- She's vaccinated. I know her location. Hey, I'm vaccinated too. Can you tell what I'm doing right now? Of course not. Okay, actually I can. And please put it away. <laughs> it's my mid-afternoon pud tug. Oh, hang on. I'm getting another call. Hello? Bill? It's Donald. We have a huge problem on our hands. The Epstein thing. It's back. Oh, yeah, it's strange timing. I'm on with other Bill right now. Hey, wait. How'd you get this number? Rudy gave it to me. Fucking Rudy. Hang on. I'll conference you in with Bill. Hey, Bill. Are you there? I have Donald on the line. I know. Listen closely. Hillary is on the move. She's only 50 feet away and closing fast. Who's on the phone? Uh, it's just Al Gore, baby. Just catching up on old times. Bullshit. You hate him. Give me the phone. Fuck. Sorry, guys. Who is this? Hillary, it's me, Donald, and my fantastic friend, a really, really smart guy. He doesn't have my brain. I have such a great brain, but he's a really smart, really intelligent- Shut up, you idiot. I know it's Gates. <laughs>
I can smell him. Through the phone? Man, I thought my vaccine chips were creepy. Listen to me, you turds. Because none of you can keep your dicks in your pants, I'm going to have to kill again. This is the last time. One more slip up, and I'm coming for all of you. Oh, and Bill, lunch is ready. Hey, great. I'm hungry. <laughs> what are we having? Eye of Newt. Oh, not one of your potions again. No. Literally, I have Newt Gingrich. I took his eye. And we're going to eat it. <laughs>